MSW Media. Hey, not Air Marshal John, you want to get back in that restroom and not rest? No, I have to get back to my seat. Yeah, you got to get back on my seat. Uh, 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 you get it? No, I think, yeah, I, I definitely got it. Uh-oh. What's that? I gotta get back to my Time to have some fun Let's do a little thinking Some picking and a drinking But this is what we're drinking With Dan Dunn (laughs) Thank you, Kalai King The man who wrote and performed the theme to this show. He's a good man, too. Heard that clip of Bridesmaids at the top of this program. Played that for a reason, because my guest on the show today is the gentleman who directed Bridesmaids, Mr. Paul Feig, who also happens to be the founder of Artingstall's brilliant London Dry Gin, which is what we're drinking on what we're drinking today. So coming up in just a few minutes, a chat with Paul Feig. Very exciting stuff. He is one of Hollywood's most in-demand directors, or at least he was prior to COVID. Now, who the hell knows what's going on? So this, I'm taping this on July 1st. This will be the last show we do before the 4th of July holiday. I will be honest with you, the 4th of July is probably my least favorite holiday of the year, not even probably, it's definitely my least favorite holiday of the year. This weekend will mark the 10th anniversary of the death of my younger brother, Brian. Uh, on the 4th of July in 2010, we hung out all day in Marina del Rey. We were having fun, partying, a big group of people. And then later that night, Brian and a friend went down to the Venice Pier in Venice Beach, with the idea of jumping off the pier and swimming in for fun, shits and giggles. And Brian did it. He jumped, and he got caught in a riptide, and he drowned. Uh, The actual date of his death is July 5th. He did it about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, Well, I guess we're going to get technical Is on his death certificate, it says July 11th, because that's the day they found his body out in the Pacific Ocean. So, a couple of years later, I needed to deal with Brian's death, and I got in my car, and I drove around the United States for almost four months, visiting wineries. Everywhere from California to Montana to Maine, down to South Carolina, and all across the southern border of the United States. And eventually that trip led to the publication of my book, American Wino, A Tale of Reds, Whites, and One Man's Blues, which ostensibly is about my quest to become the leading expert on American wine, but really it's about a road trip I took with a jar of my brother's ashes. And make no mistake, Brian was with me all along that journey. And um, I chronicle that in the book. And so to commemorate this 10-year anniversary, I really like to celebrate Brian's birthday, but I, I also want to acknowledge that it was 10 years ago this weekend that everything changed in my life and my family's life and the people that were close to Brian outside the family. And so here's a little story that appears in the book. I didn't want to get too heavy. So this involves a, uh, a rainstorm and my brother giving me shit and the two of us acting like we did when he was alive. New York City to Philly is only a two-hour drive 
Compared to the distances I'd been averaging on this trip, it barely qualified as going anywhere. To make up for this unconscionable lack of hardship, as I crossed the Verrazano Bridge into Staten Island, the cranky-looking sky opened up and unleashed a rainstorm of biblical proportions. By the time I got to Jersey, it was so bad, I could barely see ten feet in front of me. Philly and New York City have been rivals ever since Ben Franklin called Manhattan's whorehouses, quote, substandard, and quote, unfit for even the vilest strumpet. But as far as I can tell, the bad blood is primarily fueled by the fact that the two cities are shockingly similar to each other in temperament, which is to say, both are populated by a high percentage of balls-out maniacs. Case in point, the New Jersey Turnpike between New York City and Philadelphia, where this goddamn monsoon had cut the speed on the packed highway from 80 to 70. L.A. people say they don't need weather because they have traffic. But the risk of bursting my friend's bubbles, it's worth noting that, and stick with me on this, other places have traffic also. And get this, they have weather too. Also seasons, wrinkles, anger, and shame. This is not to say that I remain unwarped by L.A.'s peculiar delusions. My first instinct when the storm started was to compliment the special effects guy. I swear, at one point on the drive, I thought about taking a break and stepping out of my car where I'd find a green screen and a second AD handing me a chai tea latte and a hot towel. This was no CG guy's weather porn, though. The storm was down low and furious. The 11 a.m. darkness broken by lightning strikes, followed instantly by SUV-rattling thunderclaps. It was probably an inch of running water on the highway. Glances at my fellow road surfers revealed a white-knuckled crew, eyes wide, unnerved, and kicking themselves for not springing the extra 50 bucks for brand-name rain-tread tires. There was a palpable sense that something was about to go horribly, horribly wrong out here, the only question being how many of us were going to go down. That, of course, is the usual feeling you get on the ribbon that connects our nation's two most pugnacious cities— but this storm wasn't doing anything to calm people's nerves. It felt supernatural, like at any second. Thor might get jealous of Zeus's light show and slam down his hammer, splitting the Jersey turnpike wide open. The thought of being swallowed up, interred forever like a turncoat mobster in the bowels of the Garden State was almost comforting. It sure would beat driving in this shit anyway. None of this was helped, of course, by the acute wine-induced hangover I was enjoying. In spite of being cold outside, the increased levels of poison in my system were causing me to sweat profusely. My central nervous system was operating with the approximate efficiency of the 113th Congress, only my organs were being a little nastier to one another. I'd been this banged up behind the wheel on the trip before, Wyoming for instance, but out there it was all blue skies and open spaces. If you can stay awake and avoid suicidal wildlife, you'll be okay. Here, though... I was surrounded by minivans piloted by panicky soccer moms, windowless beat-to-shit construction vans, and SUVs that plainly gave no fucks about you or your silly ideas about what constitutes a lane. As these thoughts stumbled around my wounded brain, somewhere far away an alarm began to sound. There had been an audible rise in the engine RPM. The hell would cause that when I'm moving at a steady... And slowly like a sunrise that never seems to arrive and then suddenly blinds you, I knew. Hydroplaning. It explained a lot. Not just the noise, but the gentle rotational movement my SUV had begun to take on. The world had downshifted into ultra-slow motion with infinite space inside of every moment, allowing me to savor every facet of the experience. I told myself to stay calm, but it didn't work. So I screamed at myself to stay calm. That always works. Then I screamed back at myself to stop goddamn yelling unless I wanted to die right now in New Jersey. That shut me up pretty good. No one wants to die in New Jersey. Even those Jersey Shore knuckleheads. They all want to die in Miami. The hair on my body was standing on end like a million teenage boners. I opened my mouth because somehow it felt like I should say something. But either I didn't have anything to say or I couldn't hear myself over the rain. Or the radio, which was blasting. Bohemian Rhapsody. Who's going to take care of my dog? I'm going to miss you, Buna. Then I remembered the things on my pre-trip to-do list I had biffed. One stood out. Make a will. You can do it all online now. Only takes a few minutes. I would have given Buna to Brian. I'm dead, asshole, Brian noted from his cup holder. Besides, I'm already taking care of your last dog. 
Piglet says hi, by the way. Oh, shit, that's right. Brian's dead. Okay, my brother John should get Boone, and Brian could get my record collection. Still dead, Brian cackled. Shit, okay. Then Elizabeth, my ex-girlfriend, should get the records. We might not be together anymore, but at least she knew how to take care of them. You want to give your record collection to your ex, Brian sputtered, incredulous? Sure, I said. It's not like I'm going to be listening to them. Yeah, but you want her to die in a fire, don't you? Can you just cut me the tiniest speck of slack, Brian? I have a couple small things on my mind at the moment, not the least of which is the fact that I'm sliding helplessly into the lane next to mine. Man, people make some funny faces when you lose control of your car next to them in a thunderstorm. I see you shouting, sir, but unfortunately there's not much I can do about this. My steering wheel is no longer a steering wheel, you see. Just a giant round hunk of metal and plastic that's about to explode an airbag all over me. You want to talk to someone in charge? Talk to this SUV. But you can take it from me, no matter how much you shout at him, he doesn't answer. He's a stoic motherfucker. Being dead's pretty sweet, Brian interjected helpfully. You'll like it. Why? Because you get to come back and annoy the shit out of family members while they're at their worst? That is one of the perks, yeah, he replied. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Little on the nose, don't you think, Brian said. I don't control the playlist, dick. It's the radio I shot back. I was now fully in the next lane over with no sign of stopping, my lazy fishtail starting to swing back the other way. Sure, but you're the one listening to classic Rewind all day. This wouldn't have happened if you'd been listening to The Message. Huh? The fucking Christian pop channel? You're seriously saying that my choice of radio stations is why I'm about to get into a massive traffic pileup on the Jersey Turnpike? Nah, dude, Brian said. I just like the way your face gets all scrunched up when I say something stupid. Fuck you, Brian. Seriously. Fuck you. I have to deal with this. Deal with what, he said. It's out of your hands. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. How often do you get to slide across two lanes of traffic at 70 miles an hour? That attitude is exactly what pisses me off about you dead fuckers. You don't have to deal with anything. Well, guess what? Back here, we're all picking up your shit for you and trying to get over your stupid ass. But that's what's so awesome about being dead, Brian replied. No responsibilities. No expectations. No bills. Oh, and no spam. We don't even have phones. It's awesome. Oh, shit. When I die, they're going to clean out my bedroom. That means they're going to find the Viagra and the butt plugs. Those aren't even mine. What was that Bill Hicks bit about his parents finding his porn after he died? At least the VCR era is over, so I don't have a bunch of giant tapes hanging around. You also don't have a fucking bedroom, Brian reminded me. Okay, notch another point for the smartass. He was right. I'd moved to nowhere. The closest thing I had to a bedroom now was my SUV. Okay, so they'd find fewer butt plugs and more dashboard hula girls. Still mortifying. And now I was clearing the second lane. How's the shoulder looking? Nice and wide, actually, but then it was Guardrail City, America's second shittiest town, right behind Skokie, Illinois. Cheer up, man, Brian said. Just think of the look on Elizabeth's face when she hears you're gone. I pictured my ex-girlfriend Elizabeth at my funeral, her new boyfriend Jack with his arm around her as she wept behind her sunglasses, classic L.A. sun streaming down on the... Wait, fuck. I was going to die in Jersey. They'd probably have the funeral in Philly where the family is. Doubtful she'd come east to bury her ex-boyfriend. Shame. She looked amazing in black. Don't worry, man. You can ghost her, Brian offered. You mean haunt her? Nah, man. Ghost her. Hang around her house and look longingly at her face and do pottery and shit. Like Kurt Russell. That was Patrick Swayze. Kurt doesn't do that sentimental shit. Yeah, but you do, Brian said. I do what? I asked. That sentimental shit. Now, if you'd asked me three months prior what my ideal afterlife was, it might have resembled that 1990 cinematic shitster piece, Ghost. The wistful looks, the flowy shirts, the pottery, unchained melody. But now, in the super slow-mo realm of pure reaction and total consciousness, it hit me. I didn't want that stupid, sad, sack, can't-move-on crap. Not for Elizabeth. Hell, not for anyone. I had my life. She had hers. She might have been a dummy for breaking up with me, but that was on her, not me. Or maybe she was smart for breaking up with me. Either way, I was done feeling shitty about her. Good. You can finally start feeling shitty about me, Brian mumbled. You dick. 
All this talk of shit got me thinking of whether I'd shit myself in the wreckage. Didn't people do that? Was I even wearing underwear today? Just my luck. They're going to pull me out of this pile up with a giant stain down my back, and some asshole will pull out his phone and film it, because that's what people do now, and then my final shitty act on this planet would end up going viral, and that would be what everyone remembered about me. Not the writing, not the dogs I rescued, not the radio show, or the time I was on Conan, not the women I almost married or the kids I never had, not the charity work I always talked about wanting to do. Oh, Jesus Christ. Let me get a fucking box of tissues, Brian said. You know what, Brian? I didn't make fun of you while you were dying. Oh, I know, he said. You didn't do anything. Except sleep, of course. You're good at that. What's that supposed to mean? You don't think I'd still be alive if you'd come out with me that night? I didn't want to encourage you, I said. You were drunk. You should have protected me, he said. I was drunk. Is this really the time for us to discuss this, Brian? I'm trying to die here. Not hard enough, apparently, he said. I must have instinctively eased off the accelerator, hit a dry patch or appeased Thor or Patrick Swayze, because just as my SUV was entering the outskirts of Guardrail City, the wheels found traction on the asphalt again. And what do you know? The car was facing approximately the same direction as he was traveling. Life snapped back to normal speed again, and Brian shut up. I had threaded a needle through the gaps between four or five different cars to the far right lane, and I could feel the drivers of each of those cars screaming as a wall of adrenaline slammed into my body, making all my muscles contract at once, my thighs aching with flight hormone. Which is why, on the shortest trip of my entire journey, I stopped halfway for a breather. Breathing seemed like a pretty awesome, if undeserved, thing to be doing right now. What do we have here? Ah, yes, Mack Weldon. Oh, how I love me some Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. You probably heard about their industry-leading underwear. Hell, I'm wearing a pair right now. They're so much more than just an underwear company. They really are one-stop shop for men's basics of all kinds. From socks to shirts to hoodies to their new adjustable Storm Chaser rain jacket, Mack Weldon's wares really are the longest-lasting, highest-quality items on the market. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I went to MacWeldon.com recently, ordered a whole bunch of stuff. Took me 10 minutes, and now I'm rocking a killer new Basics wardrobe. I got some 18-hour Jersey Crew neck undershirts, a couple of pairs of A sweatshorts, and no-show socks. And Mack Weldon really does value its loyal customers. That's why they've created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program. Here's how it works. Create an account. It's totally free. Level 1, place an order for any amount and never pay for shipping again. Level 2, once you purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon, not only will you continue to receive free shipping, but you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. Oh, and Level 2 also grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to future orders. And now, Mack Weldon has a special offer for you, What We're Drinking listeners. For 20% off a first order, your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code DRINKING. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you no questions asked. Mack Weldon's mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and that shopping for them is easy and convenient. And I personally promise you this, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. With me now, man I admire greatly, uh, created one of my favorite TV series, Freaks and Geeks, as well as uh, directing a number of fine motion pictures, including Bridesmaids. Who doesn't love Bridesmaids? If you don't love Bridesmaids, you turn the show off right now. I don't want you here. The Heat, the all-female reboot of Ghostbusters back in 2016. He did a simple favor last Christmas. He's also directed tons of other uh, great television from The Office, Arrested Development, Weeds, Nurse Jackie, He's gotten two primetime Emmy Awards for writing on Freaks and Geeks and for producing and directing The Office. But for the purposes of this show, we're having him on because he is the founder of Ardingstall's brilliant London Dry Gin, a brand, Ardenstall, which is named after his 
It's his mother's maiden name, actually. So let's bring him on right now to talk about that, Mr. Paul Feig. Paul, how are you? Hello, Dan. How are you? Oh, man, it's good to have you here. As I mentioned, I'm a big admirer of your work, and uh, I, we're very happy you took some time to talk to us. I want to immediately raise a toast to you. I, I went. I know you like the martini, but yes. I went. I went with the Tom Collins. Okay. You know what? That is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with the Tom Collins. 100% compostable uh, straw here that I'm using as well. Very important. The Tom Collins was actually the first cocktail I ever had in my life. I was a teenager in Philadelphia. I didn't know anything about drinking. I had snuck into a bar with some friends of mine. We were all like 16 or something. And when the bartender came up to ask us what we wanted, now we were already in but there was still this fear that we were going to be found out. <laughs> and so I didn't want to just order a beer or something. Cause I thought I need to act sophisticated. There you go. You so fit in. And he said, what <laughs> do you want? And the only drink that I could think of, the only name I think I'd heard my dad say it was uh, Tom Collins. And I ordered that. And then the guy, my buddy next to me, he goes, what do you want? He goes, Tom Collins. We all just <laughs> Tom Collins. Down the line. So everybody knows that the Tom Collins is actually gin, lemon, simple syrup, and some soda. It's classic and timeless. And mm. it's a great gateway drink, you know. And it tastes damn good with your gin in it. So let's wow. let's talk about that. Let's talk about the um, the the origin of this gin. Uh, you, you were a martini fan and... From what I've read, everything your, your quest to find the perfect martini led you to actually create this this brand. Yeah, you know, I um, like all of us. I think as a kid, um, I had a bad experience with gin. Uh, about eight years old, and we were down in the basement of a friend's house, and the dad had a bar, and my my parents didn't drink, so I was like, ooh. So we snuck in there, and of course, opened a bottle of beef eater and took a slug, and went like, ah, it tastes like pine trees, ah, it tastes like cleanser, you know, and, and I freaked out. And so I had this image that I think a lot of people have now of gin, because a lot of people go like, oh, I don't like gin, because we had that weird experience. And so, you know, flash forward to, to later on in my life, and, you know, I love cocktails. I just love the whole world of cocktails. I love the, the the adult kind of setting of it all. As a kid, I just couldn't wait to be an adult and have cocktails and dress in tuxedos and go to, you know, fancy places. And so, you know, started drinking cocktails, but still had this weird prejudice against gin. But to me, there's nothing more beautiful than a martini. A martini glass, just the shape of it. It looks great on screen and movies, you know, it, it, like in a bar. Well, I was going to say that as somebody who works in the film business, there's such a, a rich history. I mean, you go back, I mean, you can go back to Casablanca. He, what did he say of all the gin joints in the world? You know, <laughs> there, there, it was the most popular clear spirit in, yeah. in, in America prior to prohibition. Oh, totally. You know, cause I'm a big William Powell fan and just watching not even in their movies, all the other ones, they're all just constantly drinking these, these, you know, gin, mar gin martinis or gin cocktails. Um, and so I just kind of went, I want, you know, I, I want to become a martini guy, but there's something about like a vodka martini didn't seem right. And then I started reading about martinis and just kept reading like a real martini is a gin martini. Uh, and so just one day when like, I'm going to teach myself to like gin. Um, and that was when I kind of, you know, you, you know, and back, this was, you know, number of years ago when you still was kind of, you know, all the regular ones were all you had the option for. Um, and so kind of made myself get used to that super junipery thing, which I didn't mind, um, you know, and kind of grew to love it. But at the same time, I was always like, oh, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And then it was when um, I had my first Hendrix, like way, right when it had first come out, like a friend of mine brought it back from, from the UK. It was like, you gotta try this. Then I was like, oh, my gosh. So this is kind of what gin could be, too. And so then started realizing, oh, my God, there's so many different tastes of gin and so many different ways to do it. And, you know, and then started we triggered my wife and I travel the world. And I when I make my movies, I'm traveling and just anywhere, any country we would go, I would try all their gins and just saw so many differences. But then started seeing the things that I wished a gin would be and basically just said for years, if I could ever have my own gin, I know exactly what I wanted it to taste like. And, uh, and it basically is what you're, what you've got in your glass right there. Well, I, I just poured myself. So I, as I mentioned, I have the Tom Collins, but I also want to try this neat. So as I tell you guys all the time, the first thing you want to do, you don't want to ram your nose into this glass cause you're going to burn your nose out. You want to 
get the get your nose maybe an inch or two above the glass, keep your mouth open, breathe, breathe the whole thing in, right? And mm-hmm. to me, right off the bat, this is a very floral gin. It's it's yeah. you know, it's it's got a um there's almost a I mean, the floral notes are the first thing that are hitting me, but then I'm getting, there's even like a little bit of a spicy peppery note to the, on the nose, I'm getting a little bit there. Yeah. Bit. And then, so. and then with the flavor, and I like to take a little bit to coat my palate, and then I take a bigger sip after that. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the first thing that jumps out at me about this, and we were talking about, is this is a delicate gin. And I don't yeah. mean flimsy, I mean it's a delicate gin. Mm-hmm. Juniper, as Paul mentioned, is the most notable of botanicals used to make gin. It is it's in pretty much every gin. But this one is not what I would call a juniper forward gin. I think it's very subtle here. And and I'm I'm actually getting more of sort of the 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 citrus. I got a little lemon there going on. I mean, even probably more prominent than the juniper in this one is I'm getting I'm getting yeah. that. I'm getting the citrus. Yeah, but I like that you picked up on the pepper. There's definitely pepper in there and things like orris root and that kind of thing. And yeah, the, the, what, what is interesting to me about that gin too is you do get hit with that floral right up front yeah. through the nose. And um, when we were formulating it, I was like, wow, that's interesting. I don't know if that was what I was looking to do. But then when I, then, you know, and this is, you know, went through rounds and rounds and rounds of formulas and all this. Uh, but when I got down to the final one, I, I, it was so deceptive because you hit that. And then when it hits your palate, like you say, you get the citrus, you get some of the spice and, and that's what I think I love about it because it's very, I wanted it to be very friendly. I wanted to make what I call a gateway gin, which is for people who go like, Oh, I don't like gin. You go like, okay, good. Try this. You know, I want to be the one you graduate from vodka from because I, you know, look, I love vodka. Vodka is a great thing, but vodka feels a lot of times like sort of the amateur spirit, you know, because it doesn't have any taste, obviously. And, you know, to go from that to like a Junipero or, a, you know, or a Berry Brothers number three, where you're like, wham, and you get socked in the face with all that Juniper. I wanted to make sure I could kind of transition you in. And so that's exactly what we did with this. This is what's called a London dry gin. OK, so, you know, despite the name, London dry gins can be made anywhere in the world. And in fact, Paul, you're you're working and make sure I got this right. Is it Minas Minas Craft Brewing Distillery? Minas, Minas, and they're from yeah. Calgary, but they also have a distillery in Wisconsin, correct? Yeah, Monroe, Wisconsin. Yeah, so all all the distilling tends to go on in Monroe, uh, but they're also like the seventh biggest brewer and distributor of uh, beer in North America too. So they're an amazing company. But what I love is they're family owned. It's a brother and sister, Manjeet and Ravinder Minhas, who started this company when they were like teenagers, basically to do cheap beer, and it just blossomed into this whole thing. Uh, they were making a lot of well spirits. They also make a lot of drink uh, uh, alcohol for um, uh, like Trader Joe's, you know, so a lot of there you'll see their rum and stuff that comes from Minhas. But what they didn't have was like what they consider to be a premium spirit. And so when I, you know, when my, my people contacted them because I was looking for years for somebody to do this. And, you know, I, you know, my agency and all that are really great at getting stuff done. But at the same time, they would say, look, you're not like a famous musician, you're not like a famous actor or anything. It's going to be really hard to get somebody to want to do, you know, to do a, a liquor with you. And I was like, just please keep trying. Just please look, look, look. And so after a number of years, they came across Minhas, who just at that moment decided they were wanted to branch into possibly trying a, a premium spirit. And then they did research on what I do and just like sort of the lifestyle that I represent of, you know, how I just, I, I like, I like, to present a very fun adult lifestyle where it's, you know, I feel like like so many men of my age, you know, I'm 57 years old, men of my generation are, were, have been fighting so hard to try to be teenagers, weirdly. And we've lost this whole, yes, there you go. This guy right <laughs> here. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> what are you, what <laughs> are you talking about? Drink, Paul? So that right <laughs> <laughs> but I love, but I, I want to bring back that sort of, fun sophistication that a William Powell did. You know, you watch those movies, you go like, oh my God, they're so fun. I want to drink with them. I want to look at, they're having such a fun attitude towards it and everything's beautiful and the glassware's cool. And so it's cool. it's also the lifestyle. We're not just talking about, yeah, and that's, and that's, and gin certainly evokes a certain, you know, it's different than say tequila. When I think tequila, yeah. 
I think of, you know, a party at Senior Frogs. We're doing, you know, gin has a certain level of sophistication that maybe some other spirits don't. I just want to finish up on that thought with it, with so everybody understands about London dry gin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Back in the early 1800s, around 1831, they in, a still was invented called the coffee still. And what that what prior to that, the pot still was the most popular uh, still used for distillation. The coffee still was con- was capable of continuous distillation by reheating the liquid, okay, instead of doing it in batches. So you could produce higher ABV spirits than pot stills. And there's what a coffee still looks like there's two columns. And they're separated by heated plates. And these plates uh, allow upward passage of steam and vapor. And that becomes the spirit. Okay, there's some geeky stuff away. But what basically what it means is this. Prior to the invention of the coffee still, gin was flavored with all sorts of stuff to try and cover up a lot of the unpleasant notes that were in there. And what the coffee still enabled was a production of a pure spirit. They could sell unsweetened or what they called dry. So there you have it. That's where London dry gin comes from. It again can be yeah. made anywhere, including Wisconsin. Where Paul's- And to pile on to that, you know, the FDA is very, very finicky and specific about what you can call her London dry. And they really bet it heavily. Um, there's things you can't have in it, things you can't, you know, you can't have, I don't know, there are various kind of peels and tastes you just can't have in it. So they really guard it. So, you know, I, it, it was a real eye opener for me, what Ravinder uh, Minas had to go through just to get our label approved. I mean, they have to prove every single word on a label. And so, uh, you know, but I really wanted this to be a London dry and, uh, fortunately, fortunately we got that, but, um, it, it was it was quite quite a nail biter for a while. When you went into this, Paul, did you have a very specific? I know you mentioned you you wanted to kind of dial back the juniper a little bit, but did you have a very specific flavor profile in mind going in, or did it evolve as you got into the the R and D process a little bit? No, I, I knew exactly what I wanted, which was a very smooth gin that wasn't too juniper forward and had kind of a roundness to it, uh, and so. When my first meeting with them, I basically gave examples of gins that I like that are in that world that are that are missing certain things or just don't hit the mark, but have things that I like, qualities I like. So that was our first kind of R&D thing. Then they went away and did eight different batches or bottles, you know, whatever, batches of, of gin with very, you know, within that world I had talked about, but with very big differences between there were distinct differences between this but it was all it was under one umbrella but with each one yeah. had a little nuance. Like they knew okay. they didn't make any that were super junipery they didn't make any that were you know whatever sure. so or sweet or anything like that like an old tom or anything like that so then when we got together you know we had this big tasting you know i went to went to uh monroe wisconsin and tasted it and it was like hey not no not that one at all oh wait there's something in here i like no, there's something in here i like if it could be 10% of this and 20% of that. And it was very, very, you know, uh, very specific. And then what they did is they took that information, went away, did another eight batches that were much closer to what I wanted, but with all these variations of how much alcohol content was in it and, and how much, you know, you know, this citrus peel they put in or how much pepper they put in this one, how much lemongrass they put in this one. And, um, and we did the same thing again, that we did this tasting, taste and compare with these eight things. And got down to very like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and so we did that three. Uh, we did that three times, and uh, they're so good. They they have a really great team that are you know they're scientists that, that you know distill these things that they got really close. So it was that last round of eight. They were really micro differences between them all. But the thing I never realized is how much of a difference two percent uh, alcohol difference makes for the taste of a gin because when I got down to the one that I liked the most, there was one, I was like, Oh, I like it, but it's too, there's just too much flavor in it. And then there's another, I go like, wow, this one's just too sharp. And then, and so one was a, uh, one was a um, a 40% and one was a 44%. And so I was like, it's not right. It's not right. And then Ravinder's like, wait, wait, I know what to do. I'm telling he said, I got to bring it to 42%. I said, like, that's so incremental. It won't make a difference. He said, like, trust me, it will make a difference. He brought it and it's what you're drinking now. And it just blew my mind how, what a huge difference that 2% of alcohol made. So it, it's, it's an interesting uh, thing when you put that in the context of making films, right? 
you mm-hmm. see things I'm sure that most people don't. Like if right. we cut here, if we cut one second too late, yeah, ruins it. You know, little subtle things. Do you find that that's carrying over now, I guess, into into this world? Because I, I, and I bring it up because I'm looking behind you there. You've got an original Ocean's Eleven uh, frame thing. So I've had, I know Steven Soderbergh, and I've had Soderbergh on the show. He did the Ocean's Eleven remake years ago, and Steven's got his own spirit brand. I, I don't know whether any other directors. It's you and him, I think. He's oh, got good. the Singani, which is a, a brandy, basically. A, well, Singani's actually the category, but... He talked about that, about the precision that he applies to his film career. Yeah. How in some ways he finds the spirits world even more precise, even more challenging. You have to get it right or it's all yeah. done. Yeah. Well, it's like baking. You know, if you get one thing just a hair off, the whole, you know, cake falls in or the bread falls apart. And yeah, it could, I mean, that, it's a really good uh, analogy because, yeah, we're we're so focused on micro, micro details that people don't notice, but you notice that they're wrong. And, um, you know, but the scary thing about about formulating a gin or a spirit is that yeah, it's, I don't know, it's not easier, but somehow when you look at something, visually something is kind of easier to kind of go like, that's right or that's wrong. But something that's like palette based is very specific. And the biggest fear for me was like, not wanting to just formulate something that I like that nobody else would like, you know? And so that's why there's a lot of like, what do you guys think? What do you guys think? Like giving it to people. But also the other thing was, Look, here's Dan. I've never been more drunk than the day I had to finalize my my recipe <laughs> for this in the conference room of my office. Um, because here's these eight bottles, all micro kind of you know variations. So I'm just you know I'm just taking sips, but it's like okay, well this one against playing it playing so playing those eight bottles against each other just the whole time. My wife's like, you couldn't have spit it out. It's like you don't even you, there's nothing to spit out. Like you're just taking a micro thing, but it's you know it's strong alcohol. So once I kind of got locked in on what I thought was right, then it's like, okay, let's got to make a martini. We got to make a Negroni. We got to make a dirty martini. We got to make it, you know, I want to make sure that it's good at room temperature. I want to make sure that it's good on ice. And so I was so nervous because it was like, whatever I sign off on, I'm going to be stuck with. And I'm either going to be judged really harshly by, you know, very finicky liquor uh, experts, as as we know, anybody who's an expert in anything is that way. And it was just really nerve wracking, but I'm, I'm really, really pleased at the fact that, that it came out so well. And our first outing, you know, the world spirits, uh, uh, wholesalers association, we, we won best in show and double gold. And we just got a 94 from a taster's panel magazine. So I, I feel good that I made the right choice. I yeah. should bring up, you know, talking about tasting, you won double gold and best gin at the, at the San Francisco world spirits competition, right? Uh, no, it was in Florida. It's it's the Oh, it was um, WSWA. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. And which I used to host a bunch of events down there. They switch them every year. It's Orlando one year, Vegas the next year, back and forth. But uh, yeah. but it's a big deal to do that. And that's a lot of industry people. And you mentioned, you know, the withering criticism that can come. Oh. And and you're you've even got a bigger target because having been in this business a long time, whenever a celebrity or someone from the entertainment business comes People are ready. They're, oh, they yeah. they want to take you down. They want to go. And and one of the things that I've seen that's been really impressive is there used to be more shit coming out back in the day where they just yeah. slapped their name on it. But now I'm noticing that I think people from the entertainment world have realized you have to bring it. And if you yeah. don't, you're going to be done immediately because a lot of the stuff that's coming out, and I would certainly put Arting Stalls up there, right up there, it's it's really good. It's high quality. And you talked about it earlier. A big part of that is finding the right partner, is yeah. finding somebody who, you know, I can write a screenplay. I can't direct it. I might not be able to, but I can find the right partner for it. You can find the right talent. You find the right actor. You find, and that's such an important thing. And it sounds like you're very happy with with the oh. distillery partner that you found here. I mean, they are the best, absolutely the best, uh, uh, you know, and not, not even like blowing smoke in a, in, a, in a showbiz way. I mean, it's such a it's such a finicky partnership. And that was why my agency was like, look, they're not going to do it because most of these big liquor companies, it's just like 
you know, either they want a name that they can just go, we're going to sell that name and just we're going to do what we want to do. Like they don't want you involved, you know, that involved in, in the minutia of this. But the fact that the size of this company and the hands on quality of this company, you know, from from moment one, we were a team. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know about the inside outside of, you know, the specifics of making booze, but I knew creatively and artistically and taste-wise what I wanted. And then Ravinder and, and, and Manjeet were able to walk me through the other stuff. And so I learned from them, you know, and, and it was um, it was just such a wonderful thing. But, you know, to your point about how, you know, cele- how there was so much bad celebrity stuff for a while, bad product, they are students of that. And I mean, I remember Ravinder and, and Manjeet walking me through various products that had failed and ones that had made it. And what the properties were, you know, it usually came down to the fact that whether it was good or not. But then it was also how you present it, what you name it, what the bottle, you know, what the whole package of it is and what the story behind it is. You know, and that's why it was really important to me. The bottle was going to be as important as the gin. Um, and because I wanted to make something that everybody wanted on their bar card. And it's a gorgeous, but I mean, this is a really beautiful, sturdy bottle here yeah this is the kind of bottle that you keep when you're done with the gin you keep it and you put maybe put some flowers in it or something but it's a gorgeous bottle and one of the other things i think though paul that you're doing Mm -hmm. which i feel has been very instrumental in the brands that make it versus one that that don't and i'm talking about brands that are that are that are being run by either celebrities or director is you're going out and doing the work and that wasn't always the case i think you the the biggest crowd you got to win over first are the the influencers of this industry who are the bartenders at the end of the day you can get all the press you want but unless the bartenders are push or believe in your product and are pushing your product the ones making the cocktail lists and doing all that you're kind of dead in the water right yeah. so i think there's a level of respect that comes when they see that you're going out and you're going to wine and spirits wholesalers association. You're going out to events and you're doing, you're pouring, you're bringing in, you're, you're, you're soliciting advice, uh, you know, from, from the, you know, the, the top bartenders and what kind of cocktail you think this would be in. You're doing that. And I think it's paying off. Now I will ask you this being a new brand, how has what we're going through now impacted your brand with COVID and well, it's been hard because I did a lot of what you're talking about, a lot of, you know, outreach where I was just going to all my favorite places, going to places I loved, getting to know the bartenders, giving them samples, talking through it. And so I had all these places, restaurants and bars lined up that wanted to take it on. And then this happened. So before we could get anything into, into the, you know, into them, uh, we got shut down. So it's been a bummer in that way. But at the same time, we were able to partner with like Shotsbox and, uh, you know, the Flask and, and Duvan and these different places that are have a mail order. So, you know, we're able to, to be sent to the 33 states that you can legally send booze to. So we are getting out there. But I'm, you know, I'm, as we all are, frustrated by the fact that we can't get out and kind of do what we, you know, what we need to do. And, and I just wanted it to be out there more, um, you know, just because now's a great time to be able to enjoy a cocktail more so than when we're back to normal life. But, you know, the, the support for it has been great and people have been going, you know, we have artingstallsgin.com where it has all the different you know places you can mail order it from. But, you know, I just can't wait until we're, we're out everywhere. And what I really can't wait for too is when we're out in the UK because um, I'm a big Anglophile and, you know, spent the last year living in London, you know, and it's such a town where they really respect and love London, love gin. And uh, Alessandro Palazzi, my hero, who's the bartender. Yeah. Yes. I, I had never had a more nerve wracking five minutes than when I, brought my gin to Alessandro for the first time. He's an old friend. We've known each other for 20 years to have him taste it because, you know, he is, he does not pull punches. Uh, he will tell you if he hates it. And um, I remember he poured it and he like, and I was just like sweating and he took a taste, kind of, you know, licked his lips and kind of walked around and went away and came back. And I was like, Oh my God, he's just trying to figure out how to tell me he hates it. And he's like, this is very good. This is very good. I really, I, and he started going through all the properties of it. And I was like, Oh, thank God. So, so now I just want to get in, in Duke's bar, you know, full time. Duke's is a very, very famous spot in London. And uh, in fact, we just had uh, Phil Rosenthal 
was yeah. on was on the show recently, and Phil had shot something over there, and he went in there, and he was talking yeah. about. I think I saw something in your press as well, where that that is the pinnacle. That's the t- and everything he does is frozen, right? That's how I, I. It's been a few years since I've been to Dukes, but every everything in the martini just comes. It's he freezes everything. Right. Yeah. Everything's frozen. He freezes the glass, freezes the, uh, the gin or vodka if he makes it that way. And, um, yeah, so, so it never touches ice. So, you know, but they're only four ounce martinis, which is the most sensible martini. Let's, let's, can we put a moratorium on the 10 ounce martini, please? <laughs> I beg, I beg the world. Um, although I have to admit, I've been having a few of those during quarantine. Oh, I, because nobody's no keeping problem. score. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I'm six ounces. Let's go eight ounces. Let's take yeah, it to totally. 10. I just hate when I go out to dinner and I order a martini and they bring me a 10 ounce martini because like, oh man, so I'm just like kind of screwed for the rest of the evening. Yeah. But, you know, it also gets warm too fast unless you really chug it. But, but, but Alessandro's thing is because that, that is completely undiluted. You're only allowed to have two because, uh, you know, they'll just knock you out your butter. Knock you down. Uh, one more question for you, Paul. Uh, obviously, the Hollywood stuff's been put on hold. I read that you had you were working on a pilot when this all went down. What what's next for you, or do you just not have any idea right now? No, I mean I, I I've got a stack up of projects. I mean I, I'm, I uh, produce the shows um, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and Love Life, um, and we just both those got picked up for a season two. Congratulations! So thank you. So going into writing on that, yeah, the show we were shooting, we still need to finish, but we I was able to shoot enough stuff that we could cobble together this 16 minute presentation. Uh, it's a BBC, it's a remake of a BBC show called this country, super funny, big documentary. And then I'm about, I'm just in prep now to do a big movie for uh, Netflix called the school of good and evil. So, um, you know, so we're in heavy prep, but all on zoom and all this and just kind of going like, well, someday we'll be able to get back on the set and make, make something. That's great. We don't know when. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Arting, am I saying it right? Ar, my Philly's coming at Arting, Arting Stalls. Arting Stalls, yeah. And, and that Arting Stall is your mother's maiden name. That was her and maiden name. mother did yeah. not drink either, right? No, my, <laughs> my parents did not drink. They were Christian scientists. So I'm sure they're rolling in their graves right now. But uh, although I think my mom would actually love that she had a, a gin named after her. But I, I wanted it to sound like something that had been around for 150 years. And, and it does. And, and it's got that look. Now, where can people find it, Paul? Well, right now, uh, again, in Canada, it's it's the LCBO. It, it's in all other than in BC. It's in all the liquor stores, the state-run liquor stores in Canada. So you can get it everywhere in Canada. Um, but in the states, go to artingstallsgin.com, and you can get the mail order. Like I said, through Shots Box, through the Flask, um, through uh, Remedy Remedy Liquors, and through uh, Duvan. Um, and they can they can if you if you can have booze sent to your state. We can send it to you. Get it. Okay. And any on social media, anybody follow you anywhere? You? Yeah. On, on, uh, on Instagram, it's uh, Arting Souls Gin, at Arting Souls Gin. And I'll be posting something at the Imbiber, a little video clip from this, uh, from this interview here with Paul. Paul Feig, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Dan. And we'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Hey, all. Being on lockdown these past few months has been tough on all of us. Something I've found to be extremely helpful in maintaining my sanity during this challenging time is sticking to daily routines. Maintaining a sense of structure can help prevent you from feeling overwhelmed, and I highly recommend you keep doing the little things you used to do on the regular in the pre-COVID era, like shaving, for instance. Unfortunately, Harry's is here to help you look your best while saving you a little cash along the way. Yes, Harry's has your grooming needs covered, with high-quality blades as low as $2 each, delivered straight to your doorstep. Cut out the middleman, manufacturing blades in a German factory that's been honing the craft for a century, which means you get incredibly high-quality blades at factory direct prices. And during this trying time, you'll feel a little better about your purchase. Not only is Harry's donating 1% of proceeds to nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans, they're also giving $1 million worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. That's what I call good karma for you and Harry's. What we're drinking listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash drinking. That's harrys.com slash drinking. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash drinking to start shaving better today. Hey everybody, this is Ed Kowalczyk. 
from the band Live, and you're listening right now to the second best voice from Pennsylvania. I guess that's me. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. The U.S. Bartenders Guild is a uh, group that, um, as the name suggests, it's a union of bartenders around the country. And the USBG as a national charity foundation. And this week they released their recommendations to maximize safety when reopening bars and restaurants, which has kind of slowed down, I guess, uh, right now. But it's it's going to happen. It is happening in some places more quickly than others. So just give you a couple ideas of some of the things that they put on here. Again, these are recommendations for the bars. Some of them are pretty obvious. No shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service. This isn't about denying civil liberties. It's about protecting a worker population that in large part does not have the benefit of employer-provided health insurance. Remember that when you go. Those of you who are griping about your liberties being taken away, you might be given this disease, you might be giving this virus to people who, who don't have access to health care, and, 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 and that could be devastating. It could be fatal as well. By the way, I give up on this episode. I, the neighbor's dog is going crazy. There's airplanes flying over. I kept pausing to try to let these noises go down and give a shit anymore. Bark, dog. Fly planes. Okay, where were we? Signs everywhere. They, they, they're recommending signs. Uh, perhaps as important as, as reopening safety measures are signs that communicate them to the guests. Uh, certain areas ease up on state-mandated measures. Some guests are going to attempt to challenge these measures. We've already seen that. We've seen a lot of videos about it. So they need the, the, the rules need to be posted in all these places. you got to communicate at the entrance that masks are required, tell them to wash their hands when they come out of the restroom, all this stuff, okay? The physical distancing, PPE for the employees, physical barriers. You're starting to see that a lot. Actual uh, physical bar- barriers between the staff and guests. That's going to be the new normal for a while. Uh, taking it outside is highly recommended. Uh, here in Los Angeles, they have shut down bars uh, today, actually. The inside, can't go inside. you got to have an outdoor area now. And that's I think that's going to be the case for a long time. Limiting group size, we're seeing that. The menus got to be one-time use paper menus. You can't be, multiple people can't be handling these things. It's got to be hand sanitizer everywhere. Oh, strength in numbers. You got to present a unified message that communicates to guests that you are committed to their safety and they can be trusted with their well-being. Post to social media, you know, the no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service. Tag other establishments that you're friendly with that are part of your group. And you got to be prepared. That's the, the key thing. Many bars and restaurants that are open for regular service are experiencing much higher than normal demand for food and drink. So you got to be ready for that. If you're out there, you own a bar, you own a restaurant, be ready. If you want to get Updates from the USBG National Charity Foundation. You can follow them at USBGNCF on Twitter. And uh, I think that's on Instagram as well. And uh, they do an Instagram live on Thursday today. I guess Thursday, July 2nd at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time. I think that's going to do it for this episode of the show. I want to thank you for spending time here with me. I like it. I like doing this. It's fun. It's keeping me going. I want to thank Paul Feig. Check out his gin. It's delicious. I mean it. Follow me at The Imbiber on Twitter and Instagram. I welcome your comments and questions and anything else. We'll be back next week. Yeah, we will. I promise. <laughs>